If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, to the Gospel of John, in the third chapter. If you're visiting with us, we've been uh, in a regular series, a regular exposition of the Gospel of John. Last week, we considered what has to be the most well-known verse in the Bible, and that's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we continue on now in the verses that follow that most well-known verse, verses 17 through 21. So let me ask that we read together. John 3, we'll begin in verse 16 and read on through verse 21. Please follow along as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come to each one of our hearts now and have dealings with us. As your word is open before us and as we consider the life-giving truth that it brings to us, would you breathe new life into us and would you please come and relate to us, commune with us and open up our minds and our hearts to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. We're, We're asking for help we're looking to you for help. Give it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned last week, we looked at John 3.16, uh, that great and famous verse, and I, I argued in that message that John 3.16 is the very heart of the Christian gospel, the very heart of the Christian message. It, it does merit the place that it seems to have, a, a place of prominence in our minds as Christian people. Every child should memorize John 3.16. Every Christian should make John 3.16 a part of their presentation of the gospel. It's, it's so essential to the Christian faith and to the Christian message. And Last week, I tried to open up that, that one verse under three main headings. We considered that in John 3.16, we first have revealed to us a great love, a great love of God that is shown to the world, and it's It's not expressed only in that the world is so vast a realm and full of so many, however many millions and billions of people. But but the emphasis in John's usage of that word world is not so much to convey the bigness of the world as much as it is the badness of the world. God came to so unworthy an object as the world that created order and active rebellion against God a world full of sinners, people who had rebelled against God and were alienated from Him. And it's upon those people, that most unworthy object, that God sets His love. And in in that, the greatness of God's love is shown. The second point that I brought in that message was to emphasize 
in John 3.16, the costly gift that God's love came to expression in the giving of his own dear son. His son who, John tells us earlier in John chapter 1 verse 18, was in the bosom of the Father. Or at the Father's right hand, with him in the beginning, he was in a place of intimacy with the Father. Later on in John 10 verse 30, Jesus will say, I and the Father are one. Uh, He says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, the Son was in this place of intimacy with, with God the Father. And yet it's this very one that God sends into the world to be beaten and scourged and to suffer on a cross outside the city in a place called uh, the skull, uh, to suffer the wrath of God, the penalty and punishment due to sins of all those who would believe on Jesus Christ. It's a costly gift. It's a marvelous expression of the love of God. And then the third point that I brought in that message was to emphasize the free offer found in John 3.16, that whoever believes that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ by faith to provide a sacrifice for sins and to provide forgiveness to all those who come to him, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And whoever it means whoever, from the smallest child to the oldest adult, from the most unlearned among us to the PhD, Those who come to Jesus Christ with nothing but their nakedness and their sin and their shame, with nothing in their hands to bring, if they come to Christ in repentance and faith, he will have them. He will receive them, and they will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the glorious message of John 3.16, and that's the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which you and I, if you are in Christ, by which we're saved. Now this morning, I want to thread that needle a little further in the verses that come afterwards, verses 17 through 21. And I want to open up these verses by asking four simple questions this morning. Okay, four questions of the text, verses 17 through 21. And the first question this morning is this. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? And the answer is given to us explicitly in verse 17. Why did Jesus come into the world? John 3, verse 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, God sent his son into the world on a rescue mission. He came into the world to save people from their sins. It wasn't principally a mission that was meant to affect condemnation for people, but salvation for people who believe upon his name three things I want us to see about this mission. First of all, the the origin of the mission. The mission had its origins in the love of God. We saw that back up in verse 16. The mission of, of Christ coming into the world for the salvation of sinners was motivated by the love that existed in the Godhead, and principally in this text, the love of the Father. And it's at this point I want to remind us of what I consider a really important point that we're meant to see in these verses that came out last week. That is that in the gospel and in this rescue mission of Christ coming into the world and dying for the sins of his people, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not making us lovable to God. Rather, he comes in consequence of the love of God. I think we sometimes have this notion that, well, the Son, the Lord Jesus, he's, he's the loving one. 
in the member of the Trinity. He's, he's our friend. He's the one who comes to us and helps us and loves us and makes a way of salvation for us. And God the Father is sort of here with folded arms and he needs to be pacified and appeased. And to some degree that's true. Jesus does satisfy the wrath of God. But never forget this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son and his death on the cross had its origins in the love of God. Remember the quote from, from Ryle last week, J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool? Uh, he said this, that, that to suggest that the Lord Jesus comes uh, to make us lovable to God is wretched theology indeed. But to say that he comes precisely in consequence of God's love is nothing other than scriptural truth. We need to see that. We have to get away from this notion that, that Jesus is my friend, he's the God I go to, he's the member of the Trinity I approach, and, and he makes me lovable to God, he gives me the access to God. To some degree, he does give us access to God. But remember, the Father loves you, so much so that he sent his son into the world to die for the sins of his people. So the origin of the mission is in the love of God. Secondly, the substance of the mission, or the content of the mission. What is the mission Itself. Well, the mission would involve the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God for sinners. This is the mission. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world. It wasn't principally to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And how will they be saved? By the Son coming into the world, living a perfect, sinless life, going to the cross to suffer the penalty and punishment due to our sins, and rising from the dead in triumph over death and sin. That's how we become saved. That's the substance of this mission that the Son is on. Salvation comes through nothing less than the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And thirdly, to notice about this mission that the Son is on, notice the accomplishment of the mission or the achievement of the mission. What was the result of the work of Jesus Christ. Well, the mission results ultimately in salvation and eternal life for all those who believe on Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. That's the achievement, the accomplishment of this mission. God sent his son into the world that people might be saved through him and people are saved through him. Salvation is accomplished in the blood of Christ. Atonement is made through his stripes and through his wounds. We have salvation through what Jesus Christ does on the cross, and that is the result for all those who believe on him in repentance and faith. So the origins of the mission are in the love of God. The substance of the mission is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son, and the accomplishment of the mission is salvation to all those who believe in Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. So here's the first question. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? He came on a rescue mission to save sinners. Which means, and the text does say this, he did not come into the world to affect condemnation for sinners. That is not why Jesus came. He's not coming just to divide the house. I'm gonna save these ones, I'm gonna condemn these ones. That's not the purpose of the coming of the Son of God into the world. But that leads to my second question. Second question, the first was why did Jesus come into the world? Second question this morning, what did Jesus find when he came into the world. What did Jesus find when he came into the world? And by my structuring of that question, 
I don't mean that Jesus learned something new about the world that he didn't know already. So if I randomly turned up at your house this afternoon, and I walked in, you were getting ready for lunch, and I, I, I found that you were having pot roast for lunch. Well, that would be new information for me. I would have learned something I didn't know before. I found that you're having pot roast for lunch, okay? That's not the way the language is used here in my question. It's not that Jesus learned new information about human beings that he didn't know before. Now, as an aside, Jesus did learn some things when he came into the world. The scripture speaks of him learning obedience and gaining experience as a, as a human being that makes him able to be our high priest in some ways, but that's not the way I'm using the language here. Jesus already knew mankind thoroughly. He knew exactly the sort of world he was coming to. You might remember how John 2 ends, the last few verses of John's gospel. I'll just read them quickly to you. John 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Which means Jesus knew everyone he came into contact with thoroughly. And that's true today. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus knows your heart exactly. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows precisely how many breaths you're going to take before you die. He knows all of that. He knows everything that is in man. And doesn't need someone to teach him about that. That's how I understand those verses in John 2. So Jesus isn't learning new information necessarily when he comes into the world. But I'm asking, what did Jesus find when he came into the world? When I ask that question, I'm asking, what state was the world in when Jesus came into the world? What was the world like as Jesus found it, as Jesus experienced it? What state was the world in? And the answer, in verse 18, is that he came to a world that was condemned already. He came to a world that was condemned already. Please look with me at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Is condemned already. This is why I say Jesus doesn't come to bring condemnation. He doesn't have to. Every single person Jesus came to, at least at this point, was was condemned already. The sentence of condemnation was already above their heads. He didn't need to pass any new sentence. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is born into the world dead in sin. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, they're born children of wrath. That's an interesting phrase we often misunderstand. Some people think when you're children of wrath, that means you know, maybe your parents were particularly angry people or, or you're children of Satan or something like that. That's not the way the language is used there. It means that we are subject to the wrath of God because we're condemned already. All of us outside of Christ are walking around with a sentence over our head. This one is condemned, which means that Jesus, in coming to the world, didn't come to divide the house. And it means more than that, he didn't come to people who were neutral. Have to understand this. Huge, huge implications to what I'm about to say. Jesus did not come into the world to people whose hearts were neutral. 
And he says, okay, so, so some of you are going to believe and some of you are going to not believe, so I'm gonna just divide these neutral people and I'm gonna be the decisive factor here. Not so. Jesus came to people who were already condemned, who were already subject to Satan and to sin and to darkness. This is totally antithetical to the way we think now today. I, saying that, perhaps some of you think, of course I'm neutral, what are you talking about? Right? Aristotle talked about that. I, I come into the world, I'm a blank slate. I'm neutral. And, and, and I make decisions and I decide where I'm, I'm going to land. Listen, Aristotle's lying to you. Post-enlightenment rationalism is lying to you. Modernity is lying to you. You are not neutral. And in fact, by virtue of saying that you are neutral, demonstrates that you're not neutral. Nobody's neutral. We come into this world with predispositions of the heart, with appetites and desires of the heart. We come into the world loving sin and darkness and hating God. No one is neutral. Truth is, I do not know my own heart. I need the Bible to tell it to me. I need God to tell me what my nature truly is. I so appreciated this. We have a, um, a theology class that sometimes meets on Sunday nights. And last Sunday night, uh, we considered together the subject of the, the total depravity of the human heart. And I was so pleased. I announced the topic in advance, and still 30 or 40 people showed up. Okay? <laughs> and, and why did they show up, all joking aside? Because they knew, I don't know myself. We need to go to the Bible on this one. If I want to know who I am in my nature, as one who is not neutral, we have to open up the scriptures and hear what, what God has said. And I so appreciated one of uh, the brothers who was in that class uh, just made the comments, you know, on this point, um, we really do need to learn how to uh, let the Bible evaluate us. And not just, you know, go along with what we feel. Of course I feel I'm neutral. Of course, I think very highly of myself, right? But we have to come and, and submit ourselves to the Bible's perspective on us and on our hearts and on our nature. And we find, of course, when we go to the scriptures, we're not neutral. We come into this world as haters of God and also as those who cannot properly assess and measure and know ourselves. So Jeremiah 17, verse nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not me. Like I literally can't understand myself. But who can? Verse 10, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So what did Jesus find when he came into the world? He did not find a bunch of neutral people. He came to a world that was already justly condemned in sin. He's not coming to neutral people and dividing the house. He came to people who were already dead in sin and personally accountable before a holy God. Okay, so, so now for the next two questions, I have to highlight, a, I think, a shift that takes place in verse 19, okay? There's a shift that takes place, I think, in John's argument here. So I wanna read verses 19 through 21 and then explain what I think the Apostle John is doing. So looking on at verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think John understands there to be a fundamental distinction between people. So there are those who believe, and those who do not believe. There's those who are not condemned and those who are condemned. In these verses, there's those who come to the light and those who hate the light. Those whose works are evil, there are those whose works are wrought in God. The text here in John 3 is establishing and acknowledging and recognizing a legitimate distinction between people. And that distinction is between those who accept Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And there's this implicit question in verses 19 through 21, I think. We acknowledge this distinction exists. The whole world's condemned already and rejecting God, and yet some people are believing in God. Why? That's what I think John's getting into in verses 19 through 21. Why is there this distinction? He's getting at the inner workings of unbelief and the inner workings of faith. Why do some people reject Jesus? Why do they? Do? I know they're doing it, but why do they? He's getting at the inner workings of the thing. And why do some people believe on Jesus Christ? And indeed, those are my next two questions, my final two questions. So the third question I want to ask, we considered already, why did Jesus come into the world to save sinners? What did Jesus find when he came into the world? It's a world that was condemned already. Now thirdly, why do people reject Jesus? We know they reject Jesus. Some of you have and are even now rejecting Jesus. Why do people reject Jesus? A young girl came up to me at the conclusion of last week's sermon, we talked about the free offer of the gospel. She asked a very simple, innocent question. If it's a free offer, and you have two choices, you perish, or have eternal life in paradise forever with Jesus, why, why don't they accept the free offer? Like, I don't get it. Why are people rejecting Jesus? That doesn't make sense to me, okay? Young lady, you know who you are. I'm going to try to answer your question now, okay? Why do some people reject this free offer? Why do some people reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God? The answer is found in verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. I think we should understand judgment as, as the ruling. Okay, this is the ruling. This is the, the issue. That light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. First things first, light has come into the world. What's, what's light? Light is not some kind of like common grace or some, some voice of conscience in the human soul. Light, in John's usage, is specifically Jesus Christ. Light has come into, Christ has come into the world. We saw that in John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the Word, the life, the light, that's Jesus, 
Verse nine goes on to say in chapter one, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And now in John three, we're reading, the light has come into the world. Jesus will go on to say later in John eight, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So Jesus is the light, and then verse 19 goes on to say, light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved darkness more than Jesus, okay, who, who is the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, come to Jesus, lest his work should be exposed. So people see the light. It's here. They see it. But they respond negatively to the light. It's not that light is lacking. It's that light is hated and darkness is loved. Light threatens something precious to me. There's a something I love and that I love greater than the light. They have a love for darkness, a love for that which is antithetical to the light and so light comes and that which I love as a sinner, is threatened by the light. See, there's, there's a love I have for something that outstrips any interest I have in the light. Like, I, I want darkness. That's where my heart is pointing. That's what it's toward. That's what I love. And here comes light, and light crowds out darkness, and it means I can't have darkness. So I hate the light because it threatens what I love, which introduces tremendously important point. And that is that sin and rebellion is ultimately a matter of the affections. My sin, your sin, is ultimately a matter of the affections. What's the problem with the human heart? It's that the human heart loves darkness and hates the light. It's a matter of love. What do I want? What do I crave? What do I desire? What do I love? Is it light or is it darkness? The human heart is born into the world loving sin and darkness. Sin, listen, this is so important. This is the Bible's perspective on human sin and human will. Sin is a matter of love and of preference and of misplaced Affection. It's one of the best definitions I can give for sin. The preference for anything over God. I don't want him, I want this. And I don't want him because he threatens this thing that I want more. Be it sex, be it money, be it pride, be it fame, the approbation of man, self-pity, uh, self-esteem, whatever it is. I want that. And if he's threatening that, this wins out. It's a matter of preference, preferring this over the light. One famous preacher has said that hate and love are not decisions. Hate and love, what I hate and what I love, they're not decisions of the will. They are profound, controlling preferences of the palate of the soul. The decisions I make are not ultimately, ultimately a matter of, of, of sort of just a rational reckoning of the arguments. They're a matter of taste. They're a matter of wanting something, loving something. Listen, your heart naturally has taste buds. 
That's taste buds. Things my heart prefers, my heart wants, my heart craves when I come into this world. The human heart loves darkness. It's a taste of darkness, and I love that. That tastes good. Oh, pride tastes good. The praise of man tastes good. Oh, my, my lust tastes good. Self-pity. And, and you know, no one in the world understands what it's like to be me. You know, and, and I'm at the center of the universe. That tastes good. I love that. I'm safe with that darkness. I love that darkness. And if Christ comes into the world as light, and he threatens my lust or my pride or my materialism or my self-pity, whatever, I'm choosing this. I prefer this. I want this. Men loved darkness rather than light. Is it any surprise that the first and great commandment is a directive of love? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And listen to me, you cannot embrace a gospel whose first law is to love a God that you hate. I, I can't, I don't love him. I prefer this. I prefer my sin and my darkness. Sin is ultimately a matter of the preferences of the heart and of the taste buds of the soul. And if sin is ultimately a matter of the heart and its affections and its loves and its desires, then the guilt of our sin and our condemnation rests on us. God doesn't impose our preferences on us. We just have them. We just have them. They're just there. And so by choosing the things that I love that are antithetical to God can only yield judgment and condemnation and guilt upon my own head. If sin is a matter of the affections of the heart, of the soul, of the affections of the heart, then the guilt of our sin and our condemnation rests on us. It's a willful darkness. It's a willful blindness. It's a voluntary condemnation. Light threatens what I have and what I want. It threatens how I want to live. It threatens what I do in the dark. It threatens my very passions and desires and affections. It threatens the things that I love most in the world. And any sinner, any unbeliever who can see that is seeing something true. So if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ and you've thought about becoming a Christian, but you see that to become a Christian threatens some of the darkness that I so natively love. That's true. That's exactly right. I would preach that to you. That's what this text is teaching. Coming to the light does require a decisive break with darkness. And listen, that's important for every non-Christian to know here, and it's important for every Christian to know here. Coming to the light, coming to Jesus, does require that we call darkness what it is, and that we reject it, and that we turn from it. Doesn't mean that darkness doesn't ever rear its ugly head again and try to cloud out the light in our lives, but nonetheless, to become a Christian is to embrace the light and say, I want to be known, I want to be in the light, and I don't want this darkness anymore. I want it to be gone. It requires a decisive break from darkness if you're gonna come to Christ. So you wanna become a Christian, you wanna come to the light, you have to break with fill in the blank. Pornography, 
as darkness. No room for that in the Christian life. You've got to put that away. You've got to press that down, and you have to come into the light. Pride, no room for that. I, I have to have done with myself, and I have to give all glory and praise to Jesus, and he will become the center of my life, not myself. That's darkness. That's gone. Self-pity, a world in which I'm at the center of the universe, and everything works uh, for me and my prosperity. And my self-esteem and self-worth, I'm done with that. That's in the dark. That's gone. If I want to become a Christian and live in the light, I've got to have done with that. That gossip that tastes so good. I just love getting together with my friends and talking about people behind their back. just love it. It tastes good. If you're going to become a Christian, we don't have room for that. That's darkness. We're people of the light. And to come to the light means to make a decisive break from darkness. doesn't mean you never sin again. doesn't mean you don't ever taste some of that but you process it, you deal with it and you come back to the light and you're known in the light it is I think a really important point when, when preaching the biblical gospel to help people understand that, that the gospel does require that we process our past Okay, so, so you don't you don't get to come, coming to Jesus is not like turning over a new leaf. Okay, today, you know, I'll start over now, okay? It's new, blank slate, it's all over, we're back to zero, and I'm gonna start now, and now I'm gonna follow Jesus. No, 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 that, that ignores one of the fundamental calls of the gospel to repent. Turn from darkness. I have to call that what it is, what it was. That was dark. That was wrong. That was sin. And I turn from that. I say with God what that thing truly is, and I process it, I deal with it. And I've come to the light now, that's faith. Repentance is leaving darkness, faith is coming to the light. Sin is ultimately a matter of the affections of the heart. And that is why people reject Jesus. He threatens the very thing they love. If I'm gonna come to Jesus, I can't have this anymore. I will have to, to break from this. And it just tastes too good. And I want that more than I want this. And to that young girl, that's what I would want to say to you. People do not come to Jesus. They reject Jesus because he threatens the things that they love. But now fourthly and finally, fourth question I wish for us to ask of the text. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save sinners. What did Jesus find when he came into the world? A world that was condemned already. Why do people reject Jesus? Because they want darkness rather than light. Which leads to what I think is a more problematic question. Why do some people accept Jesus? Plainly they're doing it. Millions and millions of people have done that throughout the ages. Why are people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? If they're born into the world condemned already and they love darkness rather than light, I mean, I got a human heart just like anyone else, and yet I'm a believer in Jesus. How did that happen? Okay, why do some people accept Jesus? I think the answer comes in verse 21. Okay? But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is a really clunky phrase in English. It's a somewhat peculiar phrase. So let's, let's try to break it down together. First of all, whoever does what is true, don't think like true and false. Think, think if 
I say, you know, John is a true man. He's an upright man. He does the right thing, okay? So when it says whoever does what is true, it means whoever does what's right, which I think is to believe on Jesus, to come into the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, who is Jesus. Then it says essentially, those who come to Jesus come to the light, those who believe in Jesus. It may be clearly seen that his works have been, what does your translation say? Carried out in God, that's how the ESV has it. That his works have been carried out in God. Okay, a little bit of Greek here. The Greek word translated works in verse 21. His, his works, okay? And the Greek word translated carry out or wrought or whatever your translation has come from the same root word in Greek. So literally it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been worked in God. The work is coming to the light and believing on Jesus. And that work is worked in God. Oh, it's God's the one who's bringing about the work. So I understand verse 21 to mean that belief in Christ, coming to Jesus, coming to the light, placing faith in Christ has its origins in something God does. Because remember, we're not neutral. We're haters of God and lovers of sin and darkness. And if those affections and desires are going to change, surely God must do something. God must bring about some sort of change, some sort of inward renovation and renewal. And I think that's what verse 21 is saying. That work of coming to Jesus and embracing him and believing on him and coming into the light, that's worked out in God. That's something God brings about. That's something God has to do. The difference between the lover of the light and the hater of the light is not that the lover of the light is some sort of superior person. It's not, man, I just had the wherewithal. I made a good choice. My cousin who's outside of Christ, he loves darkness, but I love the light. No, that's not how it happened. The reason some people are lovers of the light and others are haters of the light is that those who are lovers of the light have been made so by God himself. God changes our appetites. God changes the taste buds of the soul. Now, now where that which was once tasted so sweet to me, that's bitter on, on my renewed and changed and transformed tongue. And that which formerly I would, I would spit out and didn't want to eat and didn't want to taste, now that's delightful to my soul. It's no coincidence in the adult equipped class this morning, we considered Psalm 19, that language sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The ways of God, his statutes, his law, that becomes sweet to me. I love it. I want it. But how did that happen? God brought it about. That coming to Christ, that believing on Jesus, that faith was given me by God. It was worked out in God himself, which means that salvation the new birth, conversion, whatever you want to call it, is ultimately a matter of God himself completely changing the preferences and affections of the soul. God gives us a completely new heart that now rejects darkness and loves the light. So you have faith today? Where did that come from? You 
have come to the light and rejected darkness. How did that happen? The answer is that it happened because God made it happen. Why do I believe today and why will I believe tomorrow? Because God has begun a work in me that he's going to complete. Why do I, as one who used to hate God, now love him? Because God did something. God gave the gift of faith. God gave the new birth. God brought about a change, which means the guilt of our sin and our condemnation ultimately lies in the heart of man, as we've seen. But salvation and faith are all the result of God's grace and God's work within us. You remain in sin and darkness. You have no one to blame but yourself. But you come to saving faith. You're alive to Jesus and you embrace the gospel. You have no one to credit but God. Because listen, in myself, I didn't want anything to do with him. He had to take a lover of darkness and a lover of sin and make him a lover of the light. And that's true of every Christian. God has to bring about a work within our hearts. And so you who are followers of Christ, you saints, magnify the grace of God. Observe what he snatched you from. A hater of God, a lover of sin and darkness. And magnify his grace that has made you what you are. And you who are outside of Christ, behold what God can do for you and in your life if you come to him in repentance and faith. He'll give you all sorts of new appetites and new affections that you never knew were possible. Things that were once boring and distasteful and uninteresting to you, now you'll love and you'll find passions in your soul and in your heart that you never knew before. You'll experience life and pleasure and joy in ways that you could not imagine were possible. How will that be brought about? By coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and experiencing new birth and conversion by his hand. In closing, there's just three questions I want to ask to focus our minds and hearts as we come to the Lord's table. All of these questions are for the Christian and the non-Christian alike, okay? The first question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. If you've come to Jesus or if you want to come to Jesus, you can only come to him as the light of the world. He is light, which means the room for my darkness. I have to call that darkness what it is and come into his light. Second question, how should I respond to him? If Jesus is the light of the world, how should I, Christian, non-Christian, how should I respond to him? John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I gotta believe in him. I have to embrace him by faith as we come in the Lord's Supper to partake of the elements representing his body and his blood. We come by faith, believing in him and his promise to us is that we will not remain in darkness. That's how you respond to Jesus, with faith. Third question. If I come to Jesus, what will he do for me? What will he do for me? John 8 and verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. What will Jesus do for you? He'll address your darkness 
And his promise to you is that you will not remain in darkness. You say, preacher, you don't know the things I've done in the dark. You don't know what sort of stuff is there. You don't know the things that, if left to myself, I will do even tonight. That I will think even tonight. You don't know the darkness in my life. And you're right. I have no idea. But Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And he says, I have come into the world as a light. So that whoever would believe on me will not remain in darkness. He can take care of your darkness. And he can bring you into the light. And he's willing to forgive your sins and to receive you. But you must acknowledge him as light and you must come to him as light. And what will he do for you? You will not remain in darkness. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you now as light. And we come to you asking you to do those things which only you can do for us. To banish our darkness. And to cause the light of your gospel, the light of your purity, the light of your very self to shine upon us. Fulfill your promise to us that those who believe on you, who come to you, will not remain in darkness. Will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. We come to you for these things, for light, for life, for salvation, for forgiveness, for an escape from all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our darkness and the condemnation that would hang over our heads if we were outside of Christ. We come to you for salvation. We come to you for life, trusting your promises to be true. So Lord, now as we come to sing to you again to remember your death and to celebrate the provision you have made for all those who believe on you in repentance and faith. We pray, Father, that you would have dealings with us, that you would draw near to us. You would make us to be people of the light, those who hate darkness, but come by faith to the one who is the light of the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.